0: If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated.
1: Abuela, listen to what my phone can do.
0: Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer.
1: Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva.
0: Wow. Wow. Now, tell me
1: about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner?
2: Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi,
1: I'm going to whisper some things to you now about crunch chocolate bars. Because apparently this whispering thing is a thing that makes you feel things. It's saying something crunchy is coming in the candy wrapper language. Mm. Imagine your tongue hiking up those crispy, rocky ridges. Now, drum roll, please. Wow, that's good. Crunchy munchy chocolate doesn't whisper. Turn up the bun with crunch. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. It's time to get out your mince pies and mulled wine. Because today we've got a special festive edition of our Everything You Wanted to Know series on the history of Christmas. I put your questions on everything from Boxing Day and carols to Santa's red coat to the historian and author George Goodwin, whose books include Christmas Traditions, A Celebration of Festive Law, which was published by the British Library last year.
0: So thanks very much for joining me. We've got lots of questions on the history of Christmas um, from our readers on social media who've sent in questions via Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And we've also got some of the most searched for terms from search engines online. Let's start with a question from Lavie Marie, um, who was one of our Twitter followers, who asked, when did people start gathering together for Christmas parties?
2: Well, thank you very much indeed, Eddie. Well, with that one, that takes us straight in to the fact that um, the celebration uh, for Christmas really stems from the fact that uh, there has long been a, and I should say for the secular part of Christmas, uh, there has long been a celebration of the shortest day of the year, uh, the midwinter uh, celebration. It's the, the winter solstice. And it goes all the way back uh, to um, Saturnalia and uh, the Roman festival of Saturnalia between the 17th and the 23rd of December. And of course, there were um, celebrations um, by the, the Saxons and the Vikings. And that's where Yule comes from. And as for, for Christmas, um, you know, people sort of gathering for celebrations for Christmas. Well, the secular part of Christmas has a lot to do with um, Saturnalia and Yule. And uh, just to give you an idea of that, I've got a piece by the the Roman writer Lucian uh, in the role of the priest of Saturn, a sort of kind of lord of misrule. And this was written as early as the second century AD. And he says, During my week... The serious is barred, no business allowed. Drinking and being drunk, noise and games and dice, appointing of kings and feasting of slaves, singing naked, clapping of tremulous hands, and occasional ducking of corked faces in icy water. Such are the functions over which I preside. And of course, I mean, Saturn has come down to us in other ways as well. Is old father time. Uh, less charmingly as as the Grim Reaper, Uh, and of course, much more happily, uh, he gives his name to to Saturday. But uh, as far as Yule is concerned, I mean, they had um, their own sort of traditions uh, for feasting. Well, of course, it was all about feasting and drinking, but they had, um, just as with Saturnalia, um, there was the decoration with greenery to give the idea of spring and the new year, and also of of light, lots and lots of light. Again, the idea of the sort of the rebirth of of the year, um, and they had a Yule log, which, uh, unlike the sort of the modern chocolate Swiss roll version, was actually a a proper log to burn all over the the festival. So uh, in, in terms of sort of answering that, uh, the Christmas parties, um, it goes back a, a very, very long time ago.
0: So that leads us on to one of our next questions from Josephine Wong, which is, um, does Christmas have any pagan origins? Well, on the
2: face of it, it would look as if it certainly does in the way that um, it kind of clicks together with, uh, you know, our Christmas and, as we mentioned before, you know, the, the midwinter festival, and it would also sort of look as if as soon as the um, the Christians decided or the church decided that the um, Christmas day was definitely, the birth of Christ was definitely on the 25th of December, um, that um, all they did was, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to do a takeover of the pagan festival, not at all. I mean, uh, there was no decision actually on the um, on the day of uh, Christ's birth until three five four was the day that the church decided that um, he was born on on Christmas Day, and um, it's from that point they fought very very hard against the idea that. Um, the Festival of Christmas, um, which was actually called Christmas later on, but we'll come back to that, but the festival uh, would not be linked with the pagan version. And this was the case right up to um, when St. Augustine came over to to England in the 579, and at that stage um, he came with a... um, uh, uh, sort of a mission from Pope Gregory the Great, which is well now now that uh, our festival is well established uh let's let's bring in the the heathen pagans by um letting uh, them have some of their sort of festival um, festivities, but at the same time why don't we have a mass um Uh, celebration, a proper religious celebration by by baptising thousands, which is basically what happened. But the reason why the 25th of December was chosen uh, originally was because uh, the important date actually was the spring equinox, uh, when um, the church believed that, the, that was the date on which God created the world. So, of course, the creation of Jesus at the Annunciation, uh, 25th of March, uh, beginning of a new world, if you like. And of course, the 25th of March is exactly nine months before the 25th of December.
0: So now we've spoken a bit about the origins of Christmas. A lot of the questions that we had in were to do with traditions. So Siobhan O'Farrell on Facebook asked, are there any strange Christmas traditions that have been discontinued? And we also had another question from Emily M725, who said that she is studying Tudor Christmas at school. Can you tell us about some of the traditions from Tudor Christmas?
2: well taking taking the the sort of the disappearing um of traditions well and uh, these would have been ones around um during the Tudor period well let's take uh, mumming mumming was um when people would arrive at your door and they would be uh in all kinds of strange costumes, the key thing is that you wouldn't actually be able to tell who they were, and uh, they would, bumming obviously, uh, they didn't talk to identify themselves, they would just uh, make sort of uh, They they would just sort of point in various directions and uh, you would uh, have to guess who they were. Well, as you can imagine, this was an absolutely brilliant way of um, acting in a criminal fashion. So uh, the fact that that one has gone uh, is probably quite good.
0: Sounds a bit like trick-or-treating, that.
2: It is definitely like uh, trick-or-treating. And the problem was that it was more likely to be trick than treating. And there was another one on a similar level, uh, wassailing. This is an old uh, tradition, again going way, way back, um, where it was based on the idea of pouring, pouring wassail, sort of cider or beer, onto fruit trees... This was kind of the origin of it to encourage their growth for the next year, but it it developed into the creation of a a drink which would be brought to your door, and uh, there would be sort of uh, the whistle song would accompany it, and uh, again this was could be a bit dodgy because uh, people would sort of turn up at your door and uh, say, well have a drink. Uh, and uh, we'll do a little song for you and can we have some money please and of course the drink could have been absolutely disgusting so uh, that's another one which has gone but a rather a rather sort of a nice one to deal with this potential criminal activity was the the weights now the weights were uh, if you like the the local village's security uh, group, who would come uh, around Christmas time, and they would play their musical instruments and they would sing to you, and uh, that was a rather nicer way of doing it. Now, to come to the the Tudor Christmas uh, point, um, I'm going to sort of deal with the the later period, the Elizabethan period, into that of of James the First, and. Um, we can identify the elements of Christmas, which were enjoyed by sort of well-to-do families, because they were listed in a Christmas, a court Christmas mask at the court of James I and Sixth. And um, it was the um, quite important this because it was called Christmas His Mask, and it was the first appearance of Father Christmas. As a kind of personified figure, he hadn't really been given this sort of personality before. Anyway, he he comes on stage, and, and uh, it was a pretty wonderful stage because it was put together by Enigo Jones, and Ben Johnson did the uh, did the play. And um, Christmas, his mask listed uh, the various elements of uh, Christmas which were under threat from the Puritans, and these were misrule. Where you had uh, the sort of the world turned upside down, rather on the sort of uh, on the lines that I said before, with uh, with ancient Rome when uh, when the slaves became the masters and other and uh, the other way round. Uh, carol uh, mince pie, gamble, uh, post and pear, which was a, a card game, and a New Year's gift, and then of course at the end we have mumming wassail uh, offering, which is giving uh, an offering, and baby cake, which was a, a um, pre- predecessor of, um, of our Christmas cake today. And uh, the Puritans were basically against all celebration at this time because they regarded it as frivolous, and it was a throwback, as they saw it, as to the Catholicism of Rome, which they absolutely abhorred.
0: So, moving on from traditions to um, some of the most familiar aspects of Christmas. So, AgroBiodiverse asked, um, what is the earliest depiction that we know of, of the Nativity scene?
2: Well, that was uh, by St Francis, no less. Uh, In Greccio, in Lazio, in 1223. Um, But the nativity scene was also acted out. So you get the um, the nativity scene and the first nativity play all in one go.
0: It's amazing that there's a record of that. Another what's the oldest question that we had was from Jessica Roberts on Facebook, who asked, um, what's the oldest known Christmas song or carol?
2: Well, the, the word carol, of course, is derived from the, the Greek chorus, uh, which is basically a circle dance with singing. Now, the, the first English carol is completely secular, and it's, um, it's in Norman French. Uh, so please forgive my Norman French on this. Uh, it was entitled Seigneur, ore entende Annu. And it dates all the way back to the early 13th century in the time of King John. And it exhorts everyone to keep open house and to be ready to ply a neighbour with drink until he nods his head and sleeps by day. And it's as I said, it's written in Norman French uh, until the final Anglo-Saxon call of wassail, which I mentioned, and the, its response of drink ale. Now, the first religious carol, uh, as before, that's down to uh, to Francis of Assisi, uh, because uh, he very much supported this form, uh, but it was an unknown English Franciscan uh, who wrote, a child is born amongst man, and that was uh, at some point before 1350. Uh, and of course, if we go back to the secular, I mean, one of the, uh, and also to the previous question, I mean, one of the, uh, the favourite sort of uh, carols of uh, medieval and in fact uh, early modern England was one in fifty from 1521, uh, the Boar's Head Carol, and uh, with its great line, the boar's head, as I understand, is the rarest dish in this land.
0: Well, that is the perfect link um, to my next set of questions, because as has already become apparent, one of the obsessions of Christmas is, of course, food and drink. And we've discussed this already, but a lot of people have asked quite specifically for us to talk about um, Christmas food. So Anna Lilyhook on Facebook said, can you please tell us about Christmas food through the ages?
2: Well, the, yes, Well, I suppose that does lead in because, I mean, the boar's head, that was kind of top of the range uh, in medieval England. Uh, it was um, an extremely laborious process, which I won't go into, but basically um, you could either roast it or if you were very, very rich, you would um, cook cook it in, um, well, you would pull all the bits out and uh, you would marinate them in red wine, and then you would uh, then you would reform the head, and you would cook it all in red wine for hours and hours and hours. Actually, Lucy Worsley did um, a Tudor Christmas, and uh, they recreated it for her, and she tried a piece, and she uh, announced that she thought it was not very nice. She didn't like it, and uh, I can <laughs> quite understand why.
0: I was just going to say, have the main have the main themes of christmas food generally been that it's rich and it's luxurious
2: oh well yes i mean if you could afford it i mean if you were a poor peasant uh i mean it would just be a sort of a few scraps of of meat and and bacon that you would have you would have saved up but uh as time sort of progressed i mean as we moved into the sort of the 18th and the 19th century the uh, the again sort of Uh, dwelling on the the English uh, side of Christmas, the um, the key dishes, of course, for Christmas and all great celebratory occasions were roast beef and plum pudding. And, of course, this, uh, or rather I should say plum porridge in its original creation. And uh, this was, um, if you like, it could be sort of described as beef and more beef because the uh, the porridge was uh, was uh, made with uh, with meat stock it's all actually a bit stomach churning but i mean i can give you the recipe if you like shall i give yes,
0: you yes yes please a lot of people do search online um if you type in historical christmas for recipes so i think a stomach churning beef based fruit porridge is exactly what we're after right now well
2: i i am um, actually quite amusing i read read this out to uh the people at uh, at Ham House—they were the volunteers—and uh, I read it out, and uh, and I said, "It really is pretty disgusting, isn't isn't it?" And they said, "No, no, we've tried it ourselves. We think it's absolutely delicious, but uh, I think we'll let um, we'll let the listeners decide." Here we are. <laughs> Take a leg and a shin of beef, Actually, I'll tell you. This recipe was from seventeen twenty. It was from Eliza Smith, the complete housewife or accomplished gentlewoman's companion. Start again. Take a leg and shin of beef to 10 gallons of water. Boil it very tender, and when the broth is strong, drain it out. Wipe the pot and put in the broth again. Slice six penny loaves thin, cutting off the top and bottom. Put some of the liquor to it, cover it up, and let it boil a quarter of an hour, and then put it in your pot. Let it boil a quarter of an hour, then in five pounds of currants. Let them boil a little. There's a lot of boiling here, as you can tell. And put in five pounds of raisins and two pounds of prunes and let them boil till they swell. Then put in three quarters of an ounce of mace, half an ounce of cloves, two nutmegs. All of them beat fine and mix it with a little liquor cold and put them in a very little while. Then take off the pot and put in three pounds of sugar, a little salt, a quart of sack Two pints of sweet sh- which are two pints of sweet sherry, a quart of claret and the joice of two and the juice of two or three lemons. There's no joy about it. You may thicken with sago instead of bread, if you please. Pour them into earthen pans and keep them for use. What do you think, Ellie? Do you fancy that?
0: I don't think it's for me. I'm not really into the combination of meat juice and fruit. I'd like to keep those two separate, I think, really. Not on my Christmas table, I don't think. Well,
2: I I don't think you're alone because uh, there was a Swiss visitor called Caesar de Saussure who in 1720 wrote... The soup is called Christmas porridge, and as a dish few foreigners find to their taste. I must describe it to you, for it will amuse you. You must stew dried raisins, plums, and spice in broth. Rich people add wine and others beer, and it's a great treat for English people, but I assure you, not for me. So
1: uh...
0: <laughs> That is an amazing entry, isn't it? I think I'd be with him. Um I mean, a lot of listeners will have in their freezers at the moment um, the all-important turkey. So that is something that people have asked about. And Uncle Juma, which is a brilliant name on Instagram, asked, did the tradition of eating turkey originate in Britain or North America?
2: Well, one, um, the Americans have one great advantage, of course, which is that turkeys come from North America. <laughs> And, of course, the thought is that they must have had turkey at the original Thanksgiving in 1621. But actually, there is no proof that they had turkey. I mean, there were turkeys uh, around. Uh, I think ducks and geese are mentioned, uh, but there's no, uh, there's no mention of, of turkey at all. So when Thanksgiving started was officially... Uh, in 1863 uh, by Abraham Lincoln. And um, it caught on during the the late uh, um, 19th century in America. And uh, as time went on, Thanksgiving became more and more the thing, and uh, Turkey became more and more part of Thanksgiving. Now here, uh, well, of course, we know that uh, in Dickens' A Christmas Carol that uh poor poor bob cratchit has got a very very meager goose to uh, to provide for his family and um but scrooge when he's seen the light and decided that he's going to become nice scrooge to bob cratchit he um he takes along a large turkey dinner for the cratchits uh, and turkey really uh, came to the fore in the 1840s with uh, a lot of um our common current traditions as uh, no doubt we'll chat a- about in a bit but um it was a luxury food i mean it really didn't become the uh, the sort of the, the fallback position for um, for christmas which i have not been allowed to have because uh, my children uh, sacked me from cooking christmas lunch uh, some time ago, my my w- wife never cooked Christmas lunch, and my children took over. So we've had all kinds of things, but but not turkey. So I rather miss turkey. But as far as uh, uh, as England is concerned, it was really um, the 1950s and refrigeration, uh, the ability to uh, to refrigerate these birds, which actually made turkey much more popular.
0: Yeah, it doesn't go back as far as you think. And while we're talking about food, there is one more thing I wanted to ask you about. Um, I was in Aldi this week buying mince meat so I could make my own mince pies. And the guy behind the till said to me, oh, I'm from Poland and I just never understood why um, you British want to have meat, mince meat inside a sweet pie. And then I'd realised that it's actually fruit. So I think mince pies are a slightly... A strange um, food. What do we know about the history of them?
2: Well, uh, let's go back to our, our Swiss friend César de Saussure on that one because um, he talked about Christmas pies and he says everyone likes them and uh, he said they are made with chopped meat, currants, beef suet and other good things. You never taste these dishes except for two or three days before and after Christmas and i cannot tell you the reason why but he did like them he did like uh, the mince pie and um uh, oh yes they did uh and uh they um, really again in the, it was in the 19th century when uh, just as with um with the plum pudding that over the century the meat disappeared and the the lovely sweet elements which were in there before uh basically um took over and became the, the complete mince pie. Now, of course, the mince pie, quite controversial. I mean, that, um, as we've seen, it was one of the things that the Puritans didn't like. And one reason they didn't like them was because of the shape. They were made in the shape of, um, of the manger uh, in, in Catholic England. And uh, they had a um, a representation of baby Jesus. Um, now, I'm not quite sure whether whether he appeared in pastry on top of the pie or he, appear, he appeared in pastry in the pie. I think probably in the pie, maybe with a bit of pastry folded over so that, you know, you could see his head. Um, but it was regarded as completely idolatrous by the Puritans And, of course, uh, lots of people have said, uh, you know, did Oliver Cromwell, did he ban the mince pie? Well, he certainly didn't ban the mince pie. Um, Though, of course, I mean, the Puritans did close down Christmas, uh, particularly uh, when it fell, this is after they'd taken over. I mean, uh, he, he, Oliver Cromwell, wasn't in in Parliament. He was away uh, with the army when, in uh, 1643, when uh, the Scots joined the English in fighting Charles I, one of the one of the parts that the Scots absolutely insisted on was that, that there should be a fast day on the last Wednesday of each month. Now, in sixteen forty seven, the Wednesday uh, last Wednesday of the month was actually Christmas Day, and uh, they did sort of say, "Oh right, you know, uh, fasting today." Um, not even going, people weren't even allowed to go to church. And uh, so that's where the idea that they banned Christmas came from. Uh, but this, this whole um idea of him banning them, it's pie, no, no, it didn't happen. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. But in fact, the idea of gift giving, I mean, if we talk again about Christmas as a winter festival, we can again go back to, to ancient Rome. This time we'll have a quote from the first century and and the poet Marshall who said, I hate the crafty and mischievous arts of presence, i.e., you know, the idea you had to give gifts according to your station.
1: Hola. Hello.
0: This call is being translated.
1: Abuela, listen to what my phone can do.
0: Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer.
1: Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva.
0: Wow. Now,
1: tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tu sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer.
2: Awaken your senses with a curiously refreshing Hendrix Cucumber Lemonade. Curious how. Cue the aroma. Marvellous. Marvellous. Cue the taste.
1: Magnificent.
2: Cue the cucumber. That's That's the refreshing refreshing secret. secret. Hendrix is uncommonly crafted with cucumbers, roses, artistry and imagination. Other gins are ordinary, but Hendrix is refreshingly curious. (laughs) Discover Hendrix Gin cocktail recipes at HendrixGin.com. Please drink the unusual responsibly. Hendrix Gin
1: 44% alcohol by volume. Bottled and imported by William & Sons, New York, New York. Copyright 2024.
0: So, if we are moving on from the dining table to the Christmas tree and the presents underneath it, Matt Clement ninety seven asks, "When did gift giving first become associated with Christmas?"
2: Well, certainly, um, you know, we've we've discovered again talking about the Puritans that uh, that uh, New Year's gift was around in late Tudor England. But in fact, the idea of gift giving, I and mean, if we talk again about Christmas as a winter festival, we can again go back to, to ancient Rome. This time we'll have a quote from the first century and, and the poet Marshall, who said, I hate the crafty and mischievous arts of presents, i.e. you know, the idea you had to give gifts according to your station. So, you know, to keep in with people. Uh, above you socially, you had to give them gifts, but obviously not too too rich a gift, because then they would think, oh, you're pushing it a bit, you know, that doesn't really fit your station. And of course, you would you'd also expect to have gifts given to you. Uh, and uh, you would, you know, give a sweetener to people who you believed were below you in station. And it chimes, I mean, with Jonathan Swift in the 18th century, uh, he wrote, I shall be undone here with Christmas boxes. Again, it was on the same principle of of giving out gifts. And it was really mainly uh, for adults. It was kind of like an adult um, festival. I mean, children really didn't come into this properly until the, the 19th century.
0: Of course, in the UK, we have Christmas Day and then on the 26th of December, we have Boxing Day. Um, Traditionally, I don't know, I spend it lying on the sofa watching films. But Sarah Soldnick asks, please explain Boxing Day to this American listener. What do we know about the history of this day?
2: Yeah, I mean, in terms of uh, one's first thought, I mean, is it is it the time when half the nation comes out and fights the other half of the nation with boxing gloves that they've been given in their their christmas stockings fortunately not i mean it does refer back to this idea of of christmas boxes now um it's the the present giving has sort of moved from new year uh to this this boxing day and there is a sort of uh a predecessor in Saint Stephen's Day, which is the twenty sixth, where uh, he was the first Christian martyr. Um, when uh, the country squire would uh, expect his tenants to come along and enjoy some uh, some mince pies with him, and of course they would expect a gift, uh, rather on the uh, the Roman tradition. He would give them gifts, but uh, he expected a very big gift from them, uh, and that was the. That was the approach. Now, um, of course, Americans, I'm very sorry to say, they don't actually have Boxing Day. It's Christmas Day, and then it's straight back to work for some. Uh, Though I think uh, from talking to American friends, there is a sort of a growth in the European and British approach of uh, taking a couple of weeks off over the the period of, of Christmas and the New Year. But of course, I mean, our Boxing Day works rather well because Christmas Day, you've had, you know, the traditional Christmas Day, obviously not this year, but the traditional Christmas Day um, you have with the family, um, you're all sort of extremely jolly, um, you've had lots to eat and drink, and actually the next day uh, you either want to collapse on the sofa which is obviously the Ellie approach, or you <laughs> want to get out and you want to, you know, go to some sporting occasion like a football match or rugby or whatever. And in fact, actually, traditionally, um, it was the day in which people would go get on their horses and uh, go uh, either riding or hunting or racing. So uh, that that's the sort of traditional day. But, I mean, I think Boxing Day has... Um, I, I I really enjoy it, actually. I think it's quite a a good sort of part of the, the two days of Christmas and Boxing Day.
0: Yeah, so do I. There's always good TV on as well. Moving on, we if, if we're looking at what people were searching for online about the history of Christmas, we've got a lot of different, um, just queries about different aspects of tr- Christmas traditions and practices. So I wonder if I could fire a few of those at you. So first up, what is the history of Christmas trees?
2: Ah uh, now the the they did come from Germany. Now that is that is agreed. But they didn't, as is thought, um the didn't originate with Prince Albert. He definitely popularized them. He um there was a very, very large piece in the illustrated London News. Um if 18 1848 where um massive, massive great sort of feature uh, with the royal family spending Christmas at Windsor with um, enormous Christmas trees and lots and lots and lots of presents. And uh, this really sort of took off, um, as you can imagine. Everybody wanted to be like the, the royal family and uh, Christmas trees became very, very fashionable. But he was not the, the first royal to introduce a Christmas tree. It was actually Queen Charlotte, George III's Queen, who was the first one to to bring the Christmas tree over from Germany.
0: That's a good amendment to, I think, what is a common misconception about Prince Albert bringing over the Christmas tree. Um, And next up we have, what's the history of Christmas stockings?
2: Well, Christmas stockings actually goes a long way back. That goes back to um, St Nicholas, who Saint Nicholas is the the patron saint, if you like, of uh, of Christmas. Um, he became the the Dutch uh, Saint Nicholas. I Sinterklaas is uh, the Dutch um, for Saint Nicholas, and of course uh, Sinterklaas became uh, Santa Claus. And one of these stories about Saint Nicholas is that. Um, there were three women who were very, very poor. They didn't have any money. They didn't have dowries to give to get married. And he actually gave them th- um, each a stocking of gold. And that's where the, the Christmas stocking comes from originally. And, of course, this was taken up by the, the Dutch uh, with, with um, the, the celebration of uh, St. Nicholas's Day. And that actually was the 6th of December. But, of course, it's uh, for our Santa Claus um it um, it moved to the, the 25th and uh, santa claus is actually very much an american invention
0: ah how so
2: well santa claus um was it was created by um by washington Irving was the sort of the original seed for it because um in um around about sort of 1809 1810 uh new york was a was a new uh, a new sort of metropolis, a growing metropolis, and um, the citizens, those sort of prominent citizens, or some of them, um, as part of the New York Historical Society, wanted to create all kinds of traditions for this, for this city. Um, and I mean create. So uh, Washington Irving uh, rather ridiculed them uh, by saying that um, St. Nicholas had, um, had in, his, um, in his wagon uh which uh, normally was used to drop presents for 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 children on the dutch principle because of course new york was new amsterdam before um and um, he pointed the uh, the way to uh to um to these settlers to say you know this is the place pointing down this is the place where you should settle so you know that's how new york came about according to him and of course um this rather caught on this idea of this um flying st nicholas and uh, through various sort of creations we ended up with uh, with santa claus and uh, santa claus was definitely uh, on the march because it tied in with the uh, early the sort of the 18 um 40s onwards uh, present giving tradition and of course you have santa claus this great present giving figure you have Father Christmas who sort of gave a few little bits and pieces and um, so basically was a, a takeover. but clever clever Brits uh, we thought right okay, okay well this figure may be Santa Claus, but we'll call him Father Christmas. So uh, so in fact Father Christmas is Santa Claus, Santa Claus is is Father Christmas. the two are one. Um, so I think both sides are happy. And of course, this has happened around the world. I mean, Père Noël in France and uh, the Weihnachtsmann in Germany. They're all Christmas figures. Uh, and in fact, actually, in, um, in Italy, they had a, a rather sad sort of Christmassy figure, La, La Bufana, but she's been overtaken by uh, uh, Babbo Natale. So literally, Daddy Christmas has become sort of the, the Italian favorite these days.
0: Um and La Bufana, is am I right in thinking she was some kind of witch?
2: Yes, she um she basically was again a little bit on the um the Sinterklaas approach, that good children would get something, but naughty children would get a whacking. And uh so in fact, going back to the the Dutch Sinterklaas, I mean that was very much the, the case that uh, that good children were left sweets and uh but bad children were left a uh, a broom for their parents to beat them with, but as you can imagine, I mean, in in modern Holland, um, they uh, they tend to give uh, all sweets. I mean, there, there's not a lot of beating going on. I'm delighted to say, but actually, I mean, I've been told by Dutch friends that uh, even in uh, in the Netherlands, uh, Christmas is um, is is becoming more and more prominent. But I mean, uh, obviously, the two have been kept because uh, if you're a child it's pretty good to have two lots of presents rather than one.
0: Traditions that we just now take for granted gradually build up layer by layer by layer until there's something almost unrecognisable from their first um, appearance. Another thing I wanted to ask about very quickly was um, Christmas crackers.
2: Oh no, Christmas crackers, one of those wonderful inventions uh, which happened through somebody has a kind of electric light bulb moment uh, if you like, in this case, it was a cracking log in a fire moment, because there was this chap called Tom Smith. I mean, people have some people have said it wasn't Tom Smith; it was somebody else, but I believe it was Tom Smith, who was a seller of wrapped sugar almonds. Now he wanted to uh, to sell more and more of his wrapped sugar almonds, so he thought, well, can I come up with a gimmick to try and flog these things? And um, so he was sitting by his fire, and then it crackled. So he thought, aha, right, now, if I can get one of those newfangled little sort of strippy things which uh, makes a a crackling noise when you pull it, why don't I uh, wrap my my, um, sugar almonds and include this little thing that you can pull? And it took off. It took off, and um, the sugar almonds soon... No, we don't want the sugar almonds, we want the cracker effect, and that's where the the crackers come from.
0: See, I'd quite like some sugared almonds in a cracker, that'd be be wonderful. So, a couple more questions. Uh, Many people will, of course, be familiar with the 12 days of Christmas, and that's something that a lot of people have searched for online. What's the history of the 12 days of Christmas?
2: Well, um, it was, again, we go back to the early church who decided that the, um, the festival of Christmas, the religious festival of Christmas, as I said before, uh, it would consist of 12 days. So that goes back to the Council of Tor of 567. And of course, at counting, counting down, the first day is Christmas. It's Christmas Day, I mean. The first day is Christmas Day. Christmas Eve is that. It's Christmas Eve. It's the eve of the Festival of Christmas. And um, so people are going to ask me, so how about then the 12 days of Christmas? Um, So where does that come from? Is there some great meaning to the 12 days of Christmas? Well, actually, I have to disappoint you because all that stuff, beginning with a partridge in a pear tree, that was just a, a, um, a game, a children's game, a game of memory and forfeits in a 1780 children's book called Mirth Without Mischief. That's where it comes from. There's no great significance to it at all. Now, there was a, um, there was a Catholic priest called Doctor, sorry, uh, Father Stockert, who um, did actually say that he'd, he'd found, going back to the mists of time, this is, I think, in the 1970s, uh, the mists of time, um, that um, there were indeed, there was a meaning to um, the partridge and the pear tree, et cetera, et cetera, and uh, he'd found it in some old uh, Irish Catholic texts, And uh, when he was pressed on it to try and produce them, he said they'd they'd actually been washed away in a flood in a church crypt. Um, And uh, so I think that's very good. The dog has eaten my homework on that one. I'm afraid we have to go back to um, Mirth Without Mischief. And I hope that doesn't insult too many and and hurt too many of your listeners. Uh, But I'm afraid that, uh, yeah, there's no meaning to it at all.
0: Fancy a cuppa now that's their Twitter handle, spectacular Twitter handle, asked a question which brought in two elements, really, partly Prince Albert, who we've covered, but also partly Charles Dickens. But I wanted to just kind of broaden this out to ask about the way in which our modern Christmas is really shaped by the Victorian era.
2: Very good question. Uh, Well, it is completely and utterly shaped by the Victorian era. And um, we have to... Um, let's let's sort of uh, start off with a, if you like, a a trio of um, of novelists who basically held each other in the in the greatest regard. I mean, the first of these was Sir Walter Scott, and he has a um, a few references to to Christmas in Marmion, talking about you know the the traditional Christmas. Uh, but um, Washington Irving, he comes up again. Uh, he was a great fan of Sir Walter Scott. He went to visit Sir Walter Scott because uh, he, uh, he was over here just after the Napoleonic Wars, Washington Irving. Um, and he recreated a traditional English Christmas. He went to go and stay in various country houses and he re- recreated, and in fact some ways created, a a Christmas uh, that was uh, traditional. And um, a great fan of his was Charles Dickens. Now, um, Irving wrote um, Christmas at uh, Bracebridge, was uh, set at uh, somewhere called Bracebridge Hall. And uh, Dickens wrote to Irving and he said how much he admired him and he wanted to be with him on the last coach of Christmas Eve to arrive at Bracebridge Hall. And uh, he echoed him in creating um, a a rural Christmas in the Pickwick Papers in Christmas at Dingley Dell. But he also created the Urban Christmas, uh, you know, a, a time of great family sort of gathering and a time when children were very much included. They were having Christmas presents and uh, so that was actually first, he first did that in the, the mid-1830s in um, a, one of the sketches um, by Boz, uh, A Christmas Dinner. And of course, most famously, uh, in A Christmas Carol. And, uh, you know, he, he really was somebody who um, helped get across the idea of a of a family Christmas, but in a sense, he was he was riding a a, a tide there because um, again with with Prince Albert and uh, in America it was becoming very very popular. Um, it it changed. I mean, Christmas became then a, a great family occasion and uh, a time really to include to include children. And in fact, Washington Irving. Uh, back in his uh, his original uh, creation, he very much included um, Christmas presents for children as well.
0: One of the big myths of Christmas, and whether it is true or not, this is something that always comes up when we talk about history of Christmas, and people always ask it. So Wendy Arles did the honours this time on Facebook and asked, is it true that Father Christmas's outfit used to be green and then it was changed to red because red was Coca-Cola's colour.
2: Now, it was quite common for, uh, for Father Christmas to be green. He could, be, he could also be purple. He could be brown. He could be blue. He could be all sorts of colours. Now, when did he become red? Well, uh, this is the BBC, and this is a, if you like, this is kind of like a reverse advert, because it wasn't Coca-Cola at all it was the person who went furthest in creating um the sort of depiction of um of santa claus father christmas uh, as we know today um a great artist called thomas nast and that was way back in the 1870s and it but uh, the father christmas in the sort of complete red suit with the fur trimmings and the the proper the proper hat, that was first drawn by an, an actually an Australian artist though he was based in New York called Frank Nankivel. and um, he did that the first I've been able to see in a Christmas um, edition of a magazine called Puck uh, was nineteen o two now coca-cola. First, uh, took on board um, the the red Father Christmas in their Christmas advertising. That was actually not till nineteen thirty one. But I have to say, I mean, you know, fantastic art by the 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 two sort of most famous artists, Haddon Sundblom and then uh, Norman Rockwell, um, really sort of, if you like, sort of grabbed the brand. So. I'm sorry to Coca-Cola to kind of take the brand recognition away, but you've done such a good job that people will be asking this question uh, for a very long time to come.
0: And finally, as somebody who's written a book on the history of Christmas and festive traditions, I did just want to throw in one question of my own, which is what's your own personal favourite historical Christmas tradition? My
2: favourite historical christmas tradition now that's actually a very good question because of course there are so many of them i actually have to say that i am a real sucker for um a christmas carol not so much a sucker as my son who became a kind of uh, christmas carol junkie i mean he would go from one carol service to another but i do actually like a, a christmas carol and i think that uh uh, that's a a very a very nice note to uh, gosh that's a poor pun a very nice note to end on.
1: That was George Goodwin. His book, Christmas Traditions: A Celebration of Festive Law, is on sale now, published by the British Library. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow to hear Francis Young on Christmas ghost stories.